For much of the year, we've been working through a variety of topics, uh, looking at various sins that we need to be working to put off. Put off gossip, put off jealousy, put off laziness, that kind of thing. My topic for today is putting off unforgiveness. At first I thought this was a strange way of framing the topic. Why the double negative? It feels a bit awkward, doesn't it? Why not just put on forgiveness? Indeed, only a couple of months ago Steve spoke about forgiveness and so I don't intend to simply go over the same territory. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought that that topic, as it was put to me with the double negative, does make a lot of sense. Because we talk a lot about forgiveness... God's forgiveness of us, our forgiveness of one another. But we don't much talk about its opposite, unforgiveness. How can we be unforgiving? Why are we unforgiving? And how can we go about putting it off? And I think this framing of putting off unforgiveness can be especially useful. Because if you think about it, forgiveness is something we usually only think about in the active sense, in the moment when there's actually something that's happened and there's someone in front of us asking for forgiveness. But what about the rest of the time? What does forgiveness mean? And I think this idea of putting off unforgiveness is about the rest of this time. It's about shaping our whole lives so that we're ready and able to forgive when the need and opportunity arises. Unforgiveness isn't something that manifests only in a moment when we're given the opportunity to forgive or not. It's an attitude in our heart that we can cultivate and nurture throughout our lives, all the time. And we might only notice that the fruit of that attitude when we're actually asked by someone to forgive them. So it's worth paying attention to that ahead of that time. Are we cultivating these attitudes in our hearts so that we are ready, willing and indeed eager to forgive when the opportunity arises? So what are these attitudes that we ought to be cultivating that help us to put off unforgiveness? These attitudes that leave us ready and in a place to forgive. So with that question in mind, I want to look today at Matthew chapter 18, which I think can give us a guide. Some sections of this chapter are often cited when we talk about forgiveness, and I'm sure they'll be obvious to you when we come to them. But the the writer Matthew presents this whole chapter as a single contiguous block of teaching that Jesus speaks together. And so I think the ideas that Jesus presents in this chapter as a whole can be brought to bear on this question of forgiveness and preparing our hearts to be forgivers and putting off unforgiveness. So let's start reading Matthew chapter 18 from verse 1. We read, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child 
is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So the disciples here come to Jesus and ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And what is Jesus' response? He turns to little children. In other words, the measure of greatness in this kingdom is the extent to which we become like little children. Indeed, he says, if we don't become like little children in this way, we won't be a part of the kingdom at all. But what does he mean by becoming like little children? Jesus describes the position of children as lowly. And it's the lowly or the humble who are considered great in the kingdom. And Jesus readily acknowledges that this is going to take change on our part. We have to change to become like little children. It's something we have to choose to do. But also notice that it isn't just a matter of humbling ourselves, becoming like children, as he says. He also speaks about welcoming such children. So yes, it's about us being humble, but it's also about welcoming the humble. Welcoming children, yes, but also welcoming those like children, welcoming the humble. I sort of get this image in my mind of a whole community of humble people that are embracing and encouraging this kind of humility, humble hearts in themselves and in one another, rubbing off each other in that way. So Jesus is saying that his community, his kingdom, is ordered around this kind of humility, a humility towards God and our humility towards one another. And this fundamental attitude of humility underpins all the relationships within this community. It starts with that kind of humility of little children. But let's keep reading on Jesus, reading from verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be, would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. So what's Jesus' concern here? His concern is still for these little ones that he spoke of earlier. And in, in particular, anything or anyone who causes these little ones, these humble ones, his people, to stumble. Notice Jesus isn't here laying guilt upon those who stumble, but he's blaming those who cause them to stumble. Jesus is telling us to be considerate of one another with our behaviour. It matters what we do and how we treat one another. Jesus also tells us to be conscious of these things that cause ourselves to stumble. What we can do can hurt ourselves as well 
as it can hurt others. So Jesus is saying, think about it, meditate on it, and get rid of those things that do, even if it takes extreme, drastic measures. Hopefully it doesn't get to the point where we need to literally gouge our eyes out. But at the end of the day, if that's really where it needs to go, is it not better to be without an eye than to be thrown into the fire of hell? Jesus is saying, think about these things. Don't do things. Get rid of things that cause you and cause others to stumble. Be considerate of one another in these ways. This brings to mind the lesson Nathan brought us last week about disputable matters. Paul's concern was the same there as Jesus' concern here, that we not cause one another to stumble, especially as it relates to the vulnerable in every sense of the word, the little ones, the humble ones, the vulnerable ones with the weaker conscience, etc. And Jesus is saying, Paul is saying, consider one another. That's how we act and protect and love one another. Notice that Jesus doesn't say here, woe to the others who cause you to stumble. Others, of course, can cause us to stumble. But Jesus is saying that needn't be our focus. In other words, don't waste your time looking around and pointing the finger and blaming others for what happens to you or what you do. Jesus is saying, focus on your actions. What are you doing that hurts yourself or hurts others? What are you doing that are these proves to be these stumbling blocks uh, that, tr- that uh, challenge and hurt his precious people? Spend your time thinking about these things and eliminating these things from your life. You can see how this rests on this attitude of humility that we spoke about earlier. Putting others and their needs before your own. Thinking of them before ourselves. How do my actions help them and protect them and honour them? This is the way we need to be thinking. So we ought to be considerate in how we behave, both for the sake of ourselves and for the sake of others. Continuing from Jesus in, chapter, in, in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, He's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So here we, I think we see two things. Firstly, we see an emphasis on the individual. And secondly, a desire and pursuit of reconciliation with each and every one of these individuals. Jesus here isolates one individual, an individual little one, an individual sheep that wanders away because God loves and values these individuals. It's easy to love and care for people in the abstract or at least 
It's easy to say that we love people in the abstract. It's one thing to say we love all humanity or all of God's creatures. It's another thing to say that we love this specific individual, to actually act in love for this individual, to act in love for the man beaten by robbers and left on the side of the road, to act in love for a leper who we come across, who's outcast from society, to act in love for a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Love in the abstract can be expressed from the comfort of our armchair, but love in the particular is much harder to fake. And that's the type of love that Jesus modelled. Because, of course, God loves every single one of us. None of us are expendable. 99 out of 100 sheep is a reasonable return in the abstract. But if you're that one lost sheep, for that sheep, that's everything. And so the shepherd, the humble shepherd, the considerate shepherd, so too that sheep is everything. Don't you think those 99 remaining sheep still had needs that needed to be met? Still had threats to be shepherded and protected from? But in this moment when the one sheep wandered away, their risk wasn't the same as the one who was lost. The one sheep mattered. And not just in the search, but in the return, the reconciliation as well. The joy in the reconciliation with the one is even greater than the joy to be found in the 99 good and well-behaved sheep. Think about that for a moment. It's as if the act of wandering and the reconciliation strengthens that relationship more than if they'd never wandered and needed to be reconciled in the first place. That's not to say that we should encourage each other to wander off, or as Paul put it, to sin so that grace may increase. By no means. Woe to those who cause these to stumble, Jesus says. But it does speak to this power of reconciliation and of forgiveness, that rebuilding of relationships, that they can be stronger through that process than if they'd never needed it in the first place. Because God loves reconciliation. We know the lengths that he's gone to to bring about our reconciliation to himself. So how much do we love reconciliation? How far are we willing to go to bring about reconciliation between our brothers and sisters? Are we willing to leave our gift in front of the altar before we go and be reconciled to our brothers and sisters? Will we walk up and down hills through rough terrain to bring the one back? Do we care about each and every one of the sheep or brothers and sisters or are we satisfied with 99 out of 100? Reading on in verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So here Jesus moves from his parable of the shepherd and he 
explicitly talks about a real-life example. When someone wanders away, when they sin against you, what do you do? And he says, you seek them out. Don't wait. Be proactive. Go out and find the lost sheep. Be the peacemaker. Be the one to pursue reconciliation. Of course, this can feel confronting and difficult, can't it? But I think Jesus in this chapter has established some things that put this into perspective. Firstly, as we've noticed, the goal of reconciliation matters. We can't just say that the relationship doesn't matter. Perhaps the issue is too trivial to matter, and I'll say more about that in a moment, but the person involved, the relationship with them, isn't too trivial to matter. The work of reconciliation is worth the difficulties. And secondly, this first step of the process is really as low stakes as it can get. Approaching the person one-on-one puts the problem in a private, low-stakes context. Of course, repentance and admitting we're wrong is a humbling experience. All the better, then, that it's done privately, just between the two of us. It doesn't need to be made a public spectacle. There's no problem of me lording it over you publicly to promote myself in that process. If we do it one-on-one, it's an act of consideration and love for the other party and makes it as easy as possible for them to respond well with repentance and invite forgiveness. And when we're the one in the wrong, we ought not fear these situations, but we welcome them. Since we're commanded to forgive, when we admit that we're wrong and repent, we have every right to expect forgiveness from those we've wronged. See, when our community is built on humility and consideration and love for one another, as we've been talking about, it builds trust and openness. And a community open to both repentance and forgiveness for both parties. So how do we know whether something is worth bringing up in the first place? Do we just air all our grievances, no matter how small, with one another? Or do we just run the risk of elevating pettiness and making mountains out of molehills? I think it's best to think about this in the terms that Jesus has used. Stumbling blocks. As we saw last week, this is the same term that Paul used um, in Corinthians. And it's these stumbling blocks that we need to be dealing with. What am I doing that causes myself or others to sin? What's someone else doing that's causing themselves or others to sin? Of course, we're not just talking about issues of preference or taste, but issues of righteousness and sin, these stumbling blocks that cause Jesus' precious sheep to stumble. So like we discussed last week, this isn't an opportunity for control or power games. We're talking about loving one another and being considerate of one another. Where is their sin? Where is their temptation? Where are these stumbling blocks? This is what we need to be dealing with and cutting out and repenting of and forgiving. 
And of course, we do need to be proactive in this pursuit. Unforgiveness can show up by our sitting back and waiting for the other party to come to us first. But, of course, rightly or wrongly, that may never happen, which is why it's put on us to be proactive, not just to be ready to forgive, but to actively seek repentance from the other and have the opportunity to forgive and restore the relationship. So continuing on in verse 16, Jesus says, But if thou not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you agree, two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Of course, unfortunately, people don't always uh, aren't always open to this invitation of repentance. Either out of pride or stubbornness or selfishness, these same things that drive unforgiveness, someone may not respond to our attempts at reconciliation. And in such situations, we see the importance of community. It becomes a situation where others are invited into the process. First, those who can testify to the problem, if it indeed is a genuine problem, and ultimately the whole church, if it gets that far. But remember, this is a community of humility and respect and consideration. So again, this isn't an opportunity for shaming or power games. It's not a ganging up process. The only goal is reconciliation pursued in love. The concern is for the soul of the sinning party. And there's a genuine stumbling block that we're all seeking to remove for the better of the individual's and the community. So this move to involve the whole community reflects how unreconciled relationships of unrepented and unforgiven sin can affect those whole communities. While Jesus' comments here about binding and loosing are a topic for another day, we can see that there is some value and significance and power in community, of consensus, Things done in, in unity together. So when more people get involved in this type of process when necessary, we ought not feel ganged up on, but it's an act of love and concern of the whole community for the individual. So let's now conclude our reading from verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay everything back. 
the servant's master took pity on him and cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So here we see Jesus' teaching on forgiveness put into practice. Peter seems a bit uncertain about Jesus' teaching. So how much do we have to forgive Jesus? How far do we have to go in this pursuit of reconciliation? Seven times sounds like a lot, right? But Jesus reinforces his point. He's really saying don't limit your willingness to forgive in any way. Do whatever it takes and don't count the cost. Don't calculate the value of the 99 over the 100. And the justification of this expectation isn't just God's example of forgiveness in the abstract, but God's forgiveness of us in particular. We're expected to forgive not because God has forgiven mankind, but because God has forgiven us. He's forgiven me and forgiven you. We're all those individuals that have been forgiven. And if I don't extend forgiveness, no matter how small the issue, why should I expect any forgiveness at all in return? Notice how the attitudes that we've been talking about play out in this parable. We can see the humility of both the men who humbly throw themselves at the mercy of those they're in debt to, literally on their knees begging. But the first debtor forgets all this humility when he proudly and arrogantly refuses to forgive the minor debt owed to him. Indeed, he goes out of his way to punish the man who owes him. We can also see in the first instance that the king is kind and considerate. He takes pity on the servant, begging for mercy. Of course, in contrast, that servant then is not considerate or kind. Indeed, grabbing and choking him and throwing him into prison. Ultimately, the king valued his relationship with his servant above whatever money was at stake. And make no mistake, it was a huge amount of money. But that servant didn't really care about his fellow servant who owed him money. He just saw him as a debt to be paid, a source of income. He didn't value the individual for who he was, only as an instrument for his own needs. Finally, notice how the sin of the servant 
gets brought to the king's attention by the involvement of his fellow servants. They saw the wrong being done in the unforgiving servant, but they didn't stand by and do nothing. They didn't say, it's not my business, or even the technicality perhaps that the servant indeed had a right to demand payment. They saw the injustice, but then went and did something about it. They brought it to the attention of the king who had the right uh, to punish him for it. So we can see that the actions of the king and of the good servants, they worked to build a community of humility and kindness, of peace and goodness, of harmony, of reconciled relationships. But the actions of the bad servant only brought division and brokenness, mistrust and violence. The king and his good servants valued the individuals in the kingdom. The unforgiving servant didn't. Because as we said before, Jesus cares about individuals. He loves individuals, every one of us. And he cares about things that hurt those individuals. He cares about the things that separate and divide those individuals. And he wants those individuals, all of us, to be reconciled, reconciled to himself and reconciled to one another. So do we have the same heart as Jesus? Do we have hearts that are ready, willing and eager to forgive and to repair these relationships that are broken? Or do we have hearts of unforgiveness, hearts that are proud and that feel safe with these walls that remain dividing us? Perhaps we're just too comfortable, too lazy to do the hard work of reconciliation, the hard work of loving those who are just the hardest to love, perhaps, those who have wronged us, those who have wandered away, and those that just seem like too much work. Let's put off unforgiveness and foster these forgiving hearts, humble hearts, considerate hearts, loving hearts. Let's love each other, each and every one of us. Thanks, Elizabeth.